Welcome to Leadership on the Go, a podcast brought to you by the Cranfield alumni team, where we speak to former Cranfield students to understand their experience of leadership in real-world situations. Hi there, my name's Phil Renshaw, and I'm a visiting fellow and researcher at Cranfield University. Today, I'm interviewing Gabriel Marty. Gabriel's an energy and climate change analyst with lots of experience around the world, including in the Paris Climate Agreement negotiations. He's a Frenchman, working in Boston in the US, whilst I sit here and interview him from the UK. He shares some lovely stories. In particular, I like the way he explains how he learned to develop his behaviour to accommodate the uncertainties when working with people from different cultural backgrounds. In particular, how he learned to hold back giving solutions, even if that was his role, until he'd heard all the perspectives and views in the room. He also talks about the challenges this can create for time management, but how he does address that. I hope you enjoy his stories and all his advice. Well, Gabriel, thanks very much again for um, volunteering your time today. I guess Uh it would be really interesting if you can just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself, your background. Um, Yes. So I guess I would start with with Cranfield. I was at Cranfield University for a year, around 2008-2009. I was in a double degree program with my French engineering school. Uh, so I actually went to Grand Cinema last year. And I studied um, environmental management for business at the School of Applied Sciences. So I graduated with a Master of Science. And I've been since, and I'm currently still, an uh, energy analyst. So I worked in different uh, capacity for different companies, but mostly for the French government. And I worked mostly on climate change policy, but also on energy policy, energy, uh, in the energy sector uh, more broadly, as I'm doing now. I'm wondering, you know, given that experience, I would imagine you've got some insights on cultural differences, you know, the dealing with Americans versus dealing with Brits mm-hmm. versus dealing with French. And mm-hmm. I just wondered how you draw on that experience when you're, when you're working with others. It's, uh, it's interesting. Um, I, I currently work at an American company. And uh, it's actually, that has been the, the first time I work, not the first time I work with Americans, but the first time I work within an American setting, like in a, in a actually American company. Mm-hmm. And the, the short answer is that being, it has been very easy from the beginning, uh, per, perhaps because I had all of these uh, international experiences before, including at, at Cranfield. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that context, it doesn't change that much. Uh, there's things that are, you know, the way to work is sometimes a little different, uh, but by and large, I didn't find that that different. I'd say the most challenging, but also most interesting experience working with different culture, when I was working with the French um, Ministry of Environment on climate change negotiation under the uh, United Nations, the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on, on Climate Change, uh, was that I was involved in international relations, and then I, I get to interact with dozens of different culture, um, that's where you see people having very, very different approach on the subject, which is also very um, multifaceted uh, climate change. So that, that kind of compounds the, the difference because you may be talking about one aspect and they are more interested about talking another aspect, uh, not just because of cultural difference, but just also for different interests. I wonder, how do you think you adjust your your own behavior when you're in that sort of situation, when you know people around you are coming from, as you say, both different cultural backgrounds, but also 
different priorities? I think that's something I apply in every situation, but perhaps more so with you know international setting, is that I I always make a point of trying to listen first, uh, trying to refrain from asserting myself, which is not always easy because I like to uh, to move forward and and, uh, and assert uh, what I think and essentially debate it with other people. But I know that other people, but also specifically other culture, are not super comfortable doing that. Essentially, like asserting what they have in mind and then discussing it openly. And so sometimes, if you actually want to know what they have in mind and take that into account. Uh, to see how they're going to be receptive to what you, you want to talk about, then you actually have to let them move first and sometimes even actually ask for what they think, like try perhaps not so directly, but at least you have to take a more um, subtle approach and more listening approach, I guess. And that is something I learned to do over the years. Uh, it's, it was not, not particularly in my nature at the beginning, but, uh, but that is something I not found out to be very important. Um, in every context, but even more so, for instance, with Asian people, which are which tend to be uh, very receptive to uh, um, people that are actually listening and you know to what they have in mind, and even like asking follow-up question and, and, and such to show interest, of course, but also that you are actually listening before asserting yourself, uh, which may become if you start start off like that, you may be yeah you may be coming off as um, as like trying to impose what, whatever you have in mind so it doesn't work well. Yeah, really interesting. Can you think of an example where it worked particularly well for you? Or, or maybe it might be more easy to think of an example where somebody mm-hmm. did something different and it didn't work well for them. I know that, well, there was actually one that happened fairly recently uh, in, a, in a meeting at my, in my company. Mm-hmm. That's when I, was, I started last year. I, was, I wanted to find ways to improve our work process and I saw several inefficiencies because uh, people that I was depending on essentially did not identify uh, my process as like something that was priority. There are many other competing things to do. I essentially agreement my boss. I mentioned it like in a, in a staff meeting. Essentially, just come out and say, "Hey, okay, I identify these inefficiencies in the process. Uh, here's what I think we you know we should do." Like this and this and this, and start like essentially laying out the whole plan that I had in mind because I actually thought about it and and put time into to that, and they, they have not. And you know, which I thought what I was just, I guess I misidentify uh, the the problem, which I thought was lack of bandwidth and lack of uh, you know lack of time to put into this. But what was actually is more like genuine uh, reluctance to do certain things. And as I um, take the time to consult with people and like you start the session by uh, asking for feedback before actually implementing a solution that would have been uh, you know, better received, I shall say. Yeah. Uh, so that was, um, that was a, uh, like a really good experience. Uh, you know, so that's one of the things I was talking about, which is it's uh, often better to, um, to ask the people for the inputs First, even though you already have a pretty firm idea of what you have, you have in mind, first of all, to make them you know, more appreciative that, that you, know, you show that you have interest, but also uh, you may be missing a key piece of information uh, that should inform your decision. And if you ask for, if you actually have that, uh, that information, you can make a better decision with it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. 
I really like your story because for me, it draws attention to that point that, you know, we started with the, the advice, you know, what, what you would, what you would try to do, um, what you have learned to do. And yet it's really difficult to keep doing that. <laughs> so yeah, you yeah. know that that's the right, that that's a principle, but actually in practice, it's easy to, uh, to, to not do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, great. Now tell me a bit about what you learned from your time at Cranfield that you think you might draw on now in terms of your you know, leadership activity or management activity rather than technical. Mm-hmm. Learning to work with uh, people from other background, uh, that was the first time where diarrhea to do that, in earnest. Uh, definitely not the last, but the first time Yep. In a, and, and not just doing like, although that's, that's also important at this stage, but some, uh, some school project, but also actual, actual work, like doing project management. Uh, I was actually project manager on the project during my year at Crownsville, and I was working with um, three other team members uh, from different countries. I believe they were one British, one Czech, and one Austrian, if I remember correctly. So across nationalities and gender. And, um, and yeah, there was definitely a bit of an experience uh, because at the beginning, that was you had to first find common ground between people of very different uh, background, uh, level of language as well, which doesn't doesn't help when you have to uh, work in uh, in English. And for that particular project, there was a lot of language intensive tasks, like say uh, answering the phone and that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, so that's that was definitely uh, you have to find a way to find a. And of course, the solution was not like oh. The bridge team member, you do all the work, and <laughs> us like sit back because we have, no, that, that obviously that's not going to work. Um, so first, spending some time to uh, actually know people and find uh, common ground, and try to to identify anyone's strengths and weaknesses that can be used to do that. That was so that was definitely a, like a big experience for me. First, uh, like a legitimate experience in project management, which. Um, that's something that you have to learn as well, but also in a, in a setting with very, uh, very different people. And so that, that part I definitely was definitely beneficial down the line for, for my career. Do you think there's anything unusual or different about the sector that you work in, you know, working in energy and environment, if I understand that as a correct mm-hmm. description of it, do you think that affects yeah. the way uh, you lead or manage or just work with other people? It's it's a very broad field. So what I'm gonna and I during my career I touch upon different aspects of it. To the extent that we interact with utilities, uh, utility companies are a strange bunch. <laughs> they are heavily regulated, and they are, the behavior is is very. Uh, it's it's a topic of it. We can spend an entire conversation on that. It's very interesting. But uh, it's uh, the bottom line is they are very. It's a very weird bunch of companies which don't behave like the rest of, uh, of the market. So they are very diverse, a very level of technicity, very level of regulation, very different level of reactivity. So it makes working with, with them across the country very uh, complicated. You have to be um, very um, cognizant of the very different uh, differences, I suppose, across the market. Uh, but other than that, it, it works more like a regular business. Now, on the, on the climate change part of, of my work, uh, which happened mostly before this job, but um, it's something I'm very interested in. So I'm, I'm very likely we'll be back on that area soon. Um, specific climate change policy, it's, it's, uh, it's very specific. It's very special because this is a topic which is uh, even more so than energy. Climate change is a topic which is so 
cross-cutting, like it touches upon everything essentially. Yep. And so yep. that makes that makes when you're a climate change analyst, like I was for many years, you have to be essentially a specialist in a little bit of everything. Now uh, you always have more training and more knowledge in one area. In my case, it was the energy sector. One thing I learned when I was, especially when I was uh, working on the Paris Agreement negotiation, was that you have to become a specialist in a little bit of everything. And so that's very hard because <laughs> it's yeah. a very, very uh, large topic. So we're talking about not only energy, but also industry, uh, forestry, land use, agriculture, uh, transportation, and, and so on, like all the big, big sectors. And that's just from the um, technical and economic point of view. But also you also be, if like me, you were essentially tasked with um, looking at uh, each country and all the approach to, to climate change, uh, to what extent they would be able to to commit to ambitious climate targets, that means you have to also know, at least at the basic level, you have to know about the the politics, the the, the policy, the the way the government works, the way they conduct diplomacy, like which international group are they part of, and that sort of thing. So I guess the question that comes to my mind is, how did you manage your time then? Because it sounds like you were having to learn so much knowledge to be yeah. a specialist in so many areas. It's uh, it can be complicated. <laughs> uh, the, the the short answer is I worked a lot, uh, but but more importantly, it's it's really a matter of like setting priorities because you can't you can't do everything. You can't become an expert into everything. That's just not possible. But you you have to be knowledgeable about more things than others. In this case, there was uh, things like energy and transportation touch everyone essentially, like every country in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say like other. Sectors and issues don't touch anyone, but uh, things like energy, transportation, forestry are very the big one that touch almost everyone. So the, the the key is like you you spend some time trying to learn enough to to at least understand what's going on, but then you you learn one of the key time management strategies. You have to learn to rely on other people. You have to learn on making connection with uh, people that are, that are experts in these fields so you can tap the brain when you need them. You have to uh, network and, and build that, that, that uh, network of experts that you can reach out to and say, hey, I have like, this question, but I'm not, I'm not sure I really understand this field. Uh, does that make sense? Or like, what you can tell me about it? Because it, it saves you a lot of time. Yeah. So you have to be expert at gathering information uh, efficiently. That's definitely the most important time management uh, skill that, yeah. that you can have, I guess, as an analyst. So I heard you say it's about setting the priorities, learning to rely on others, making those connections and networks. Mm-hmm. And as you say, being an expert at, at, at gathering the information as distinct to knowing the information, I guess. Yes, that's, that's a good, good summary. Given this reliance on others, how did you persuade them to give you their time? So I guess the, the most difficult part is that you cannot wait until you actually need, need them to do it. Right. Because what I found is that um, almost everyone, except maybe people at very high level in an organization, almost everyone are willing to, to give a bit of the time to make connection and to answer questions uh, to, um, to people in their field or even just, you know, people just getting started sort of thing. The key is that you have to give them a lot of time, which is, uh, and that's the hardest part. A lot of people can do that, but they are, everyone's very busy. So sometimes when, even if you ask for, for like a 30 minute conversation, that may take months to schedule. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and you have to be insistent. You have to be, you know, without being pushy. And that's, that takes a lot of time and organization to do. And so you cannot wait until you actually need it uh, to build that network because that's not going to work. You're not going to be able to do that in a couple of weeks. Uh, it has to be pre- you know, essentially uh, done over the years. And that is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's how you do it. Uh, it. There's really no other way. Like I haven't found like a shortcut, uh, say, from that time when I was part of the, when I was in the UN negotiation where someone essentially made that shortcut for me and I hired a whole bunch of, bunch of experts uh, that I could just tap into. But most of the time, that's, not gonna, that's what's going to happen. Yep. <laughs> um, and even in, uh, in governments uh, which have um, environmental departments and, and are supposed to have climate change experts, usually it's just a couple of persons uh, with that knowledge. And that's just not enough uh, on its own. Yeah, and that's not a not a not an easy answer because <laughs> it's not easy to do. But uh, and perhaps more importantly, it's not easy to maintain because that's that's part the part I found the most difficult is less reaching out to people and convincing them to give you some time because you can do that if with enough diligence. Yeah, but it's more about maintaining that network when you don't have because you know, that takes a non-trivial amount of time. And and do you have any little tips, any little techniques that are helping you maintain contact even though you've still not worked it all out yet? I still have a lot to learn, I think, to this regard. But essentially, the, the obvious one is is using uh, LinkedIn and uh, mm-hmm. and just like sending, posting updates uh, every once in a while. No, not not like long posts about everything you do, but but just like short things about so you achievements and sort of thing. Uh, maybe like, you know half a dozen times a year, and so just just so you would just pop up in other people's feed other than just the automatic uh, notification saying, oh, this person changed job or that sort of thing, which yeah. kind of serves the same purpose, but this, this is actually more you doing it. And that's, that's a good reminder to people like, hey, I haven't talked to this person in a while. I can reach out. Uh, so that's, uh, that part is, is useful. I found the very classic sending emails to you contact a couple of times, you know, a few times a year, Saying you know, as in you know, happy Thanksgiving or happy happy Christmas or, yep. or Merry Christmas or like, and so essentially that using that as an excuse and saying in a couple of lines, hey, I did this in the last six months or did that, and what you know, please let me know, you know, if you want to chat, uh, please answer, you know, that's a classic thing. Really, what you should do is, you know, at a set frequency, maybe like every month, every other month, uh, reach out to one one person and say like. Uh, set yourself the goal essentially of like having one meeting uh, every like every month or every two weeks or whatever works for you. That's how you know, people. When uh, I met a lot of people that were very successful networking, and they all came up with the, at least this trick in the, that they had in common, which is set you know if you don't make time for it, if you you have to do it like regularly and set a like a calendar alert for like every other week or every month. Say like, and my objective is within that time period I have to have X amount of, of meetings. Uh, some say, you know, like say two new meetings, two meetings with new people and one meeting with uh, like one of my existing contacts or, or, you know, whatever breakdown makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. But that's, that, that's, that's a part of which is uh, perhaps the most challenging, but it also helps to um, have concrete objective in, in these terms and rather than just leave that up to, oh, whenever I have time. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, uh, that's excellent advice. It's, it's a little bit like Back to your earlier point, it's easy to realize you need to do it, but actually mm-hmm. making yourself do it requires another little step. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so as I mentioned, uh, making sure you stop and listen for people before making decisions is, is important uh, because you might be missing that crucial piece of information. That part I, I touch base. What I want to elaborate a little bit on is that if you don't actually hear something different uh, or some feedback or something like this, like uh, if say you have a room of people that just when you you propose something they all say they all nod or they all say yeah possibly yes, that doesn't mean that your idea is great. It just means that they just didn't they don't want to be bothered with voicing something else. Uh, so you in this kind of situation you actually have to go ask for it. Like you have to ask for a question. You have to you know like to or to give encouragements like you know say if you think think different don't hesitate to tell me that sort of thing. So the point is like just. If you actually want feedback, and, you, and I agree that pretty much in every situation you should, you have to, uh, to sometimes actively ask for it. Yeah. Um, and when you do, when someone do mention it, it sounds pretty straightforward to say that, but you have to be ready to hear it as well. Yeah. Uh, which means, first of all, uh, you have to listen uh, all the way. Uh, so even if you disagree, uh, there's... Uh, Always time to uh, to disagree at the end for sure to turn them to discussion. But either way, you have to listen. When someone's in the middle of the argumentation, you don't cut them off. I guess that's pretty basic, but always yeah. worth saying. And I think something like I've div- I've learned over the years, like asking follow up question when someone talks, is actually very important. Not just to have actually have the information, but also to show active interest, like to show that you're not just a passive listener. You're here. And it keeps you grounded in the conversation as well. Another favorite of mine is also uh, reformulating what was said to you in your own words. If someone told you something and you've done that during our interview, uh, when someone says something and you essentially say like, so what, what you're saying was then reform, reformulating and summarizing what they just said. That way you can tell if you uh, actually understood what they said or not. And I found it much easier to um, help you rem- remember whatever was said uh, down the line. That's a great habit to, to take. Uh, basically turning passive listening into active listening. Yeah. Uh, as I like to put it. Brilliant. Now yeah. that's, com- that's completely brilliant, Gary. I mean, again, that you, 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 are, you are a coach without realizing it. <laughs> that's what we... <laughs> well, <good> to know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we, that's one of the skills we teach people is to, as you say, reformulate, summarize what you think they heard, you heard, I'm sorry, play it back to them because that both helps them hear what someone else heard, which could be different to what they intended. And as you say, it has that added effect of helping you remember and, and demonstrating that you're, you're actively listening, which is, which is really yeah. important. Uh, the other thing, very quickly on that aspect, to the extent that you can separate listening with decision-making, because it's always worth listening, try to keep as open as a mind before making like an actual decision. The reason for that is that if you go into a conversation say like, I know what I know, but I'm just going to listen either way, that doesn't work as well because you already made your decision. So you don't actually pay attention to what other people are saying. Uh, and it's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a tricky one because sometimes we, we have strong opinions on things, but trying to keep an open mind. And not necessarily, that doesn't mean like everything is always up in the air, but if not about the core thing, at least on the, on the margins, like allowing some some room to change your mind uh, is important because otherwise you're not going to listen as effectively as you would if you were going to this with uh, with an open mind. Yeah, great advice. 
Excellent, Gabriel. That's been really, really interesting. I've got uh, lots of great stories from that and lots of things that uh, <laughs> that I fully agree with, which is also great stuff, of course. Um, really grateful for your time. Excellent. Well, I hope there's an opportunity when we can chat again. It's been really, really interesting. That was great. Thank you. Great stuff. Thank you. You have a great day. You too. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening today. Many of the ideas that we discuss on these podcasts link directly to my book with Jenny Robinson. It's called Coaching on the Go and is published by the Financial Times and Imprint of Pearson. If you'd like to learn more about me or about Jenny, please be sure to visit our website, www.coachingonthego.co.uk. Or you can just jump on Amazon and search for Coaching on the Go where you'll find our book. Thank you for listening along with us. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, you can find Leadership on the Go on cranfield.ac.uk forward slash alumni, where you can browse our complete archive and check out new episodes.